1: And running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome.
2: Welcome. <laughs> this is the
3: show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery. Advances. advances questions,
4: research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in
5: science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Harry Lewis. And in this week's programme, is genetically edited food about to hit the supermarket shelves? It's thank you for your service and goodbye to the InSight Mars probe. And brain scans suggest teenage girls are more vulnerable to depression.
4: And after that, we are continuing our look at alternative energy sources. And this week, it is the turn of tidal power. How much energy is locked up in the sea and how realistic is it for us to harvest it? The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
5: first this week it's been dubbed the antibiotic apocalypse microbes are becoming progressively more resistant and we're running out of drugs to treat certain infections at the same time most of the major pharmaceutical players have exited the antibiotic game because they just can't make enough money why because if they do come up with a blockbuster drug then the first thing doctors like chris here will do is put it on the shelf and not use it except when they're desperate Luckily,
4: there are, nevertheless, still a lot of exciting developments happening at grassroots levels in universities and in startups around the world. And this week, researchers at the Rockefeller University in New York unveiled a new drug that they've discovered that works in an entirely new way to knock out common important bugs that we encounter in the clinic. Sean Brady and his team use computers to trawl through the genetic codes of 10,000 different bacteria from the environment, looking for genes bearing the hallmarks of being the recipe for an antibiotic. They decoded what molecules these genes would make and then asked a chemist to knock them up for real.
6: Many of our antibiotics in use today are coming near their end due to the development of antibiotic resistance. So where do you look for antibiotics? Well, historically, many of our antibiotics have come from bacteria. But what happened is we began to run out of those. The obvious places to go look for new bacteria and interesting antibiotics from bacteria began to run dry maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. What people have learned over that time period is that maybe we've missed a lot of the antibiotics after. That hidden within bacteria, maybe there are genes or groups of genes that might make new antibiotics that would help us revitalize the pipeline for antibiotic discovery.
4: One obvious question that springs to mind is, well, why are microorganisms, bacteria, making antibiotics in the first place?
6: It's a good question, right? We don't really know, but the prevailing hypothesis is that they're competing with each other that they're out in nature competing for limited amounts of food. They can't talk. They can't move very well. And so how do they communicate? How do they keep others away from them? They use antibiotics.
4: And I suppose the, the ones that we focused our attentions on hitherto have been the ones that we could spot, we could grow, we could study. Mm-hmm. And there must therefore be enormous numbers that we've completely missed.
6: Yeah, that's actually what my group, my research group worked on the past 15 years is, is this idea that there are many, many bacteria out in the environment that we haven't been able to bring into the lab because scientists just aren't smart enough to grow them. And so you need to come up with ways in which you could identify the antibiotics they make. One way we, we worked on was instead of growing bacteria, is just extract their DNA, literally extract DNA from dirt and then put that into bacteria that do grow. We've had a tremendous amount of success looking for antibiotics using that strategy. But there's one problem that came up, and that was as we clone these genes from the environment, many of them never turn on, which means we can't identify the molecules that those genes should be making.
4: Obvious question though, Sean, when you just grab some DNA out of a hunk of soil, how do you know which bits of DNA might be promising candidates for making antibiotic molecules in the first place, so you know to focus your attention on those genes at all?
6: So bacteria are smart, but they aren't that smart at the end of the day, in that they've only evolved a few dozen ways of making molecules. And that means we can limit our focus to just a small number of gene types. Now they use those gene types to make many, many different molecules, but evolution has only led them down a certain number of pathways. We can quickly filter out lots of the other genes that we know aren't making molecules or antibiotics.
4: So you have in your hands the ability to spot genes that look promising because they've got that sort of hallmark characteristic about them that smells like this could make antibiotics. The problem has been you can't make the genes turn on. So how have you solved it?
6: So for a number of years we've been working on this idea that instead of using biology, we would use bioinformatics. So we use computer algorithms to look at the genes and predict what they might actually make. Then once we have a predicted structure, we can use synthetic chemistry to actually make that structure. And we identified one that would kill drug-resistant, antibiotic-resistant bacterial pathogens.
4: And how good is it as an antibiotic? I mean, let's start, before we start talking about whether it'll even work in an an animal like us, if you put this on bacteria growing in culture dishes, what sorts of bacteria can it knock out, and how good is it?
6: It kills a a number of pathogens, Staph aureus, probably one of the famous ones that your audience may have heard of, as well as some other bacterial pathogens. And it kills them in a unique way, binds up or takes away building blocks that no antibiotic had taken away before. And it's the the new mechanism that is really interesting in addition to just its activity.
4: You're saying it, it in some way robs the bacteria of resources so they can't grow properly?
6: Exactly. And it does so binding actually two molecules at once. So it's taking two resources at once. turns out the bacteria, if you just take one resource away, can generally get around that. They eventually develop resistance pretty easily. But if you take away two resources, it presents an often insurmountable, very difficult to surmount problem. We think that's one of the neat things about this antibiotic. And it makes it very difficult for bacteria to circumvent that antibiotic. So no bacterial pathogens that have been found in the clinic that we've tested are resistant to this molecule that we've identified so far. And then when you just test in the lab where you let bacteria grow for long periods of time, they don't develop resistance to this antibiotic.
4: In the past, we've found some similarly very exciting potential antibiotics. The problem is when you put them near us, they're awful for us as well. So does this look like, or have you tested this compound to see if it's tolerable by living things like us?
6: So, so far it's only been tested in, in mice. We don't see any negative impact. It's not toxic to cells in the lab. And so far in the animal studies we've done, we don't see a toxicity to the animals, which, which is exciting.
5: Sean Brady, and he's just published that study in the journal Science. Amazing stuff, isn't it? Now, this week, the UK government
4: began the process of bringing gene edited food into law, and that will allow for the sale of crops that have had improvements made to them by science. The new genetic technology bill, as it's called, will replace an existing EU moratorium on growing food that had been modified in this way, and it will allow scientists to use tools like the gene editing system known as CRISPR to improve their crop yields, build in disease resistance, or even give plants added nutritional benefits. Now, critics, on the other hand, are calling the bill GM crops, but with better PR. Although the government were intending to follow this course of action anyway, but it was the looming food security crisis that's led to the bill being expedited. James Titko spoke with Gideon Henderson, who's the Chief Scientific Advisor to DEFRA. That's the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. I think there are a
7: couple of important things that have changed, one of which is that the public have got much more used to people talking about genetic information. It's quite a long time now, of course, since the 1990s. And in that time, we've seen really substantial benefits to human health and use of genetic information in biomedical processes. There was also quite a genuine concern in the 1990s of how this was actually playing into the hands of big business rather than helping food producers or helping the public. And I think this time around things are very different in that gene editing is a very accessible tool which smaller businesses can use. And uh, it's much easier to get into that market.
3: This new bill obviously has a degree of urgency with the food security issues, but does it feel also like the right time to be pushing this legislation forward when trust in scientists is perhaps at a bit of a high?
7: I don't think it hurts at all that science has been so useful to the public in the last couple of years. But that doesn't explain the timing. The timing is more explained by the combination of the development of the tools that enable this precision breeding and this accurate gene editing, and also the UK leaving the the EU so that we're now able to re-examine the regulation ourselves independently.
3: What benefits can we expect to see once this passes?
7: Many other countries have been enabling gene editing of crops for some time now. So perhaps the most immediate change that we might see as consumers in this country is that products that have beneficial qualities for us as humans or for the way that they're grown on our shelves as a consequence of what's happened elsewhere but even more exciting from a UK perspective and in the only slightly longer term I think we're going to see new crops developed which will provide significant benefits to the environment and significant benefits to human health through their consumption and increase productivity of our land so that we might free up some land area
3: the bill also will enable the development of precision bred animals as well. Can you tell me a bit about that and when we might see that come into practice?
7: Well, as a, a nice example is there's a porcine respiratory disease, which is endemic in this country and in many other countries, and which causes a great deal of suffering for animals and dramatically lowers productivity of pig farming. And it's been demonstrated by UK scientists that we can develop a breed of pig that is resistant to that respiratory disease. And that will be an early win by which we can both increase productivity and decrease animal suffering.
3: Currently, no UK supermarket is willing to say it will stock gene edited food. New scientists contacted 11 of the UK's biggest supermarkets. None responded to confirm. So clearly they're being very cautious. There's still a hangover from the GM crops debate you'd have thought bringing down the cost of food would only serve their interests, really.
7: Retailers are, as you suggest, fairly positive and and supportive of the ability to make better, healthier food with less environmental consequence. It does make sense that an individual retailer might be reticent to come out and state support as a single entity. But I don't have the sense that any retailer is, is hostile to these changes either. They're just not willing to be the first one to put their head above the parapet.
3: There could be other benefits of this in the long term. I'm thinking about opportunities for countries in the developing world, for example, where some of the main exports are food crops. They might be able to grow plants, that have a longer shelf life or produce a bigger yield, which before had the stumbling block of not fitting our regulations.
7: Certainly many areas will be under significant heat stress and sometimes water stress in the future as climate changes. And building crops that are more resilient will be much easier using gene editing approaches than relying only on more traditional breeding approaches. So we can help to really secure food supply across the world. And one example that I like here is is rice blight, which is a disease that can significantly lower the output and the productivity of rice crops around the world. Of course, we don't grow rice in the UK, but it's really important in Southeast Asia and in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly West Africa where rice blight can significantly damage um, productivity. And there are proven gene editing approaches by which we might make rice resistant to rice blight and therefore be able to eradicate some of those problems or, or much improve them.
4: it be interesting to see where that goes, won't it? Gideon Henderson there, he's from DEFRA and he was talking to James Titko.
5: And it's timely then that scientists at the John Innes Centre in Norwich announced this week that they'd created a gene edited tomato that makes vitamin D.
8: From baffling British weather... The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat
2: in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientist's In Short podcasts bring you
8: a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com short or subscribe to Naked Specials on iTunes.
5: You're listening to The Naked Scientist and still to come we'll be taking a look into how the male and female brains develop in adolescence before continuing on our renewables rampage. This week it's whether or not the tide can be a sure source of energy. See what I did there Chris? You're me a
4: run for my money Harry. Now in other news a sad moment is looming large on the Martian horizon and that's because the Insight Probe is running out of power. InSight's been critical in revealing to us what the inside of Mars looks like by using the Martian equivalent of earthquakes to study the planet's interior. But dust accumulating on the probe's solar panels means it's now operating on only a tenth of the power that it did when it first touched down. So, for the rest of the summer, NASA are going to be using it for just 12 hours a day, and then it'll drop down to 12 hours every other day before the plug finally gets pulled at the end of the year.
5: Planetary geologist David Rothery from the Open University gave me his insights into what Insight has shown us.
1: Okay, Insight is the NASA lander on Mars that doesn't have a rover. It's just a static lander and it deployed in particular a seismometer. It landed on the surface and with its arm it took its seismometer out and placed it firmly into the ground and covered it with a lid to keep the wind off it. And this seismometer is sensitive to the vibrations in the ground caused by Mars quakes. So it's our way of listening to what's going on inside Mars. And what has it been able to find? Well, first of all, it's it's told us that Mars is seismically active. There are Mars quakes. The biggest one, magnitude 5 on the famous Richter scale, happened only two or three weeks ago. And we're able to use the wave of vibrations to travel through the body of Mars, different types of vibrations, um, compressional waves and shaking waves, and look at the polarisation of the waves as well. You can work out the layered structure of Mars. So we've detected that Mars does have a core for the first time. It's not a surprise. We expected it to have an iron core. It's a bit bigger than we expected. Yet The crust of Mars is a little bit thinner than we expected, and then there's a mantle in between. Um, So we've got the internal structure of Mars constrained and um, we think part of the core is probably fluid as well. There's there's an experiment on board that measures the exact rotation of Mars and how that varies on a fairly short timescale shows that the Mars is a little bit sloppy inside. So we've got hints of the core being fluid as well. So if we're honest, we don't understand the early stages of planetary formation. When does the core separate from the rocky part and so on and um, how thick the various layers are and what is going on inside a body? Why, Why do we still have earthquakes on the Earth? We know we've got plates moving around as well as erosion and deposition changing the loading on the crust. So things are creaking all the time. We don't have plates moving around on Mars, but we do have erosion and deposition, so the load on the crust is changing. But how does it respond to these uh, these changing forces? So it's it's told us a lot about the inside of the planet, and this hasn't been done before. The only body where a working seismometer has been deployed previously is onto the Moon by Apollo astronauts, who left four working seismometers on the Moon at the end of the Apollo program. But we've never had a seismometer on any other planet and we've had one on Mars for three and a half years now.
5: Are Other probes that are out there on Mars, I'm not sure how many there are, are they facing similar issues or is this something that is quite specific
1: to InSight? There are three rovers working on Mars at the moment. There's a Chinese one, which um, has been there several months now. We don't hear much of that. Uh, NASA has Curiosity, which I think has been going for a decade or more. And there's Perseverance, which landed early in 2021 and that's just about to trundle up towards the top of the, the the delta where it landed so we have rovers moving around mars and because they're moving um they don't get solar panels covered with dust and and a lot of the power comes from radio thermal generator anyway they've got plutonium on board to generate electricity from that process so they're not dependent on sunlight for power
5: and in the short term of Mars exploration in particular, where are we up to? What are we expecting to happen in the near future?
1: Well, the big disappointment this year is that the Rosalind Franklin rover, the European Space Agency lander on Mars, isn't going. Uh, This is because it was going to be launched on a a Soyuz Fregat um, launch vehicle from Karoo in French Guiana, and indeed the descent and landing system is Russian as well, and the whole Ukraine situation means that that mission is not now going ahead so it would would be great to have Europe's own rover trundling around on Mars as well I have a lot of colleagues who work very hard on defining the landing site and all their careers are on hold now but that aside um, we're getting samples collected by NASA's Perseverance rover which eventually will come back to Earth through a joint NASA European Space Agency uh, project to bring samples of Mars back for analysis on Earth And that's
5: a crazy thought that we'll soon have something that's so far away within reaching distance.
1: Yeah, it'd be great to have samples from Mars that we've collected ourselves. We, of course, do have bits of Mars already because there are meteorites, which are are chunks of rock that have been knocked out of Mars by impacts and then have gone through space and fallen down to Earth and been recognised. So we do have some out-of-context Mars samples, but we have nothing that we've collected ourselves.
5: Dave Rothery how insightful next as we go into our teenage years all kinds of changes happen to our bodies and our appearances but there are also important changes happening to our psychology too sometimes that can lead to mood disorders like depression what's striking though is that girls seem to be affected twice as often as boys the question of course is why
4: Well, Lena Dorfschmidt at the University of Cambridge wondered the very same thing. So she scanned the brains of a large group of adolescent children to look at which areas change their patterns of connections the most at this particular age, reasoning that if those bits are changing, perhaps those are the bits that are breaking as well. And in girls, there was a lot more rewiring going on, particularly in brain circuitry, in areas known to be linked to depression, than there was in boys. And this, she suspects, might be making the girls more susceptible to developing a mood disorder in the first place.
2: We know that during adolescence, our brains develop very rapidly. And we also know that during that time, the, a lot of psychiatric disorders are diagnosed, for example, depression. Women are much more likely, about twice as likely, to be diagnosed with depression than men are. We ask ourselves the question, is there maybe something about the development during adolescence that may trigger this increase of incidence of depression in women during that time.
4: You don't just think that there's a disparity in pickup, that women are more likely to talk about it, men are more likely to do the stiff upper lip thing and keep quiet?
2: <laughs> there may be a certain component of that. I don't think that explains everything, though. I don't think we have women reporting symptoms twice as likely as men do. And also we have a separate sample of data where we can actually see that even in healthy adolescents, women are more likely to experience difficulties in mood.
4: And you're attributing that to these very rapid changes that have to happen to the brain as we grow up.
2: Yeah, exactly. You can maybe imagine this. If you wanted to reorganise your room and move things around, There's a chance you might drop something on the way. You you know, The more you change, the more likely you're going to break something. And our brain is in some way similar. If you remodel or rewire a lot of connections in your brain, there's a greater chance that things may go wrong wrong along the way.
4: This is the moving parts get broken more more often hypothesis, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So how did you try and get underneath the skin of that then?
2: So we used... MRI scanners where we can take 3D images of the brain and we can actually monitor brain activity while people are just lying in the scanner. And we know that even when people don't do anything um, while they're lying in the scanner, that tells us a lot about the way that their brain functions already.
4: So what you you've got groups of adolescents that you can watch in this way and ask the question, well, how is your brain wired up?
2: Exactly. Yeah. We just look at how do the different brain regions communicate with each other? Um, If neurons in specific regions fire together, we say that they're very likely to be connected or this connectivity between these regions. So there may be two regions that are highly connected. They fire together all the time. We think that they, they are working together.
4: And how do you map that onto underlying mood or psychiatric problems?
2: What we did first is we looked at how does this firing together of brain regions look like in males and females separately and then constructed a map of differences between us. So we can now understand which are the brain regions that are most different between girls and boys and men and women. And what we found is there is a set of brain regions where the females develop much more drastically than the males do. So in those regions, the women restructure, rewire much more than the boys do. And what we did then, we looked at these regions and we relapped them with the regions that we already know from other studies are implicated in depression. And there's a really, really good match between those. We know that the same regions are impacted.
4: So why would a female brain wire itself into a state of depression at all?
2: I don't think we can say the female brain wires itself into the state of depression. All the people we looked at are healthy adolescents. The only thing we're trying to show you is male and female brains develop differently and women change a bit more. It is simply that because they change more, we could assume that something may go wrong.
4: So you've now got this map or this network of connections between different regions of the brain and you can see dynamically how that changes in adolescence it strongly overlaps with areas that are implicated in subsequent mood disorders. So does this give us any insights into what causes that to happen? And, and when people do get mood disorders, what we could do perhaps to head it off before they end up with an entrenched depression or something?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, we don't understand so much about that yet. There isn't a great amount of detail on how depression looks differently in men and women. And this is really what we're trying to do with our work here. We're trying to show that if we want to understand how to treat depression, we need to look into males and females separately because we can now already see that there is a signal that is very different between them.
5: Lena Dorfschmidt there, and that study has just come out in the journal Science Advances. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with
9: Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
2: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
5: It's The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Harry Lewis. Prompted by the energy crisis, we've been looking at some of the alternative energy sources that we might be able to plug into.
4: Now last week, solar power was in the spotlight, but we've waved that goodbye. And this week, it is the turn of tidal energy to be subject to our scrutiny. And we're going to see how marine renewable technologies can contribute. The UK makes for a great case study, of course, because being an island nation, there's no shortage of water all around us just waiting to be farmed. But, oh boy... It looks like Harry has nipped out of the studio. Where's he got to?
5: I'm down in Milford-on-Sea. It's on the south coast of the United Kingdom. On a day like today when it's sunny, it almost looks like the Isle of Wight is within spitting distance. We have an estimated 18,000 kilometres of coastline and on top of that, territorial waters that stretch 22 kilometres out to sea. It seems almost nonsensical that we're not making the most of this marine environment, this resource as an energy source that's on our doorstep. With that in mind, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to find out why we don't have the technology in the marine environment to compete against something like wind in the UK and also what the future of marine renewables looks like.
4: So how do we currently extract energy from water? Well, Simon Wardman is a lecturer in renewable energy at the University of Hull.
9: Last year, 43% of the UK's electricity came from renewable energy. About 30% of that was offshore wind, about a quarter of it was onshore wind, and then there's some solar and some hydro and some other things.
5: That's got to be better than expected, isn't it? That's got to be breaking the targets that we've set.
9: Well, of course, we're hoping that by 2050 will be entirely zero carbon, which means renewables plus nuclear. So we're not quite there yet, but it's, it, we're doing well at it. And that's up considerably. It was only 37% in 2019. Back in 2010, it was 5%. So it's been a remarkable shift in that time.
5: Wow, I didn't realise that. How do we go about generating electricity from bodies of water? What are the different
9: methods? Hydro at present is about 5% of our renewable electricity generation. So that's significant. The other, the other two big ones uh, potentially are tidal energy and wave power. Tidal is working. There are early machines in the north of Scotland that are generating onto the grid right now. So a tiny fraction of what goes into the lights that you and I are sitting under is coming from the tides. There was a recent scientific publication that estimated that if we develop it, we could get about 10% of the country's current electricity needs just from tidal stream energy. Wave is not at that stage yet. Wave is still very experimental and is a bit further off.
5: Hydroelectricity in the UK is really running at full capacity, leaving us with three marine environments left to exploit on a major scale. As Simon said, that's wave energy and we can actually split tidal energy into two different factions. So that's stream and range. So after much deliberation, I think the best way of demonstrating how these three potentially big players can work is to run a bath. And that should probably do it. Let's turn off the taps. Oh, wrong way. Okay, so first up we've got wave energy. That's gonna require a little bit of chop. Okay, and there are a few ways that we can make the most out of this environment and take energy from it, but the most effective method so far has been to place a long line of cylinders on the surface right here. And that's been demonstrated by a massive 120-metre prototype called the Palamis off the shores of Portugal. The name is actually derived from a sea snake, so it, it sort of looks like one of those toy snakes that can move, or a toy train with all its carriages. As the cylinders bob up and down, two hydraulic rams on either side are pulled and pushed alternatively, and that in turn drives a turbine. In the other two cases, we're drawing on energy from the tide. So let's start by trying to make a large swell in the bath back and forth. Here we go. If we want to exploit the large tidal ranges we have in the UK, we need to wait until the tide is in and then try and trap it somehow, try and trap some of that water. I'm going to use a storage lid, but it's more likely companies would build a dam-like structure or wall. Here we go. Let's try and get some then. All right, it's not a great seal, but I think I've got some. So what you can do is you store it, and then eventually, when you'd like to, when the tide is out, you can release this energy, which will in turn drive turbines, much like a hydroelectric dam. So all that energy is stored up, and then we just release it. Finally, we have tidal stream renewables. Now, the currents that are produced by the swell of the tide, are scarily strong. So if we could place a simple device in the water capable of surviving these extreme conditions, it could be relatively simple to drive a turbine. For this, obviously, our device would need to sit under the surface of the water.
9: At the moment, we're favouring tidal stream, mostly because tidal range is very tempting in terms of the amount of power that's available, but it has very large environmental impacts and has a very high upfront cost whereas tidal stream is a bit easier to get into.
5: We're still at the start of testing these prototypes. Why is it that we're, we're stuck in the stone ages of, maybe that's a bit harsh, of marine
9: re- renewables? I think it is a bit harsh to say we're stuck in the stone ages. Some people would say that at the moment, tide is in a similar place to where wind energy was in maybe the 1990s. In the last decade, the industry has demonstrated that tidal energy works. So the task now is to deploy it at greater scale to learn by doing, and by doing that, bring the costs down.
5: You said that this could make up 10% of the UK's electricity needs. Whereabouts would these machines be employed?
9: So for tidal stream, you have to put the machines where the fast flows are. And in the UK, that means various places around the north and the west of Scotland, also around Anglesey and some of the West Wales headlands, and possibly some other sites like the south coast of the Isle of Wight.
5: If you haven't got wind and you haven't got any sunshine, you know you're going to have a consistent source of energy.
9: Exactly. Um, Tide isn't available all the time, but we know when it will be available. And because the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time, we don't want all our eggs in one basket. We want to have a range of technologies to help us out.
5: And in terms of bodies that we actually have in the water, what do we actually have that's generating electricity around the UK coastline?
9: So there are quite a number of of individual single machine prototypes, including at test centres in Scotland and Wales. But there are also two companies who have got um, early arrays, what they call the first commercial arrays. One of them is a company called MadeGen, and they've got six turbines at present just off the north coast of Scotland. And there's another company called Nova Innovation, who have, I think, three or four turbines uh, in the Shetland Islands.
4: Simon Waldman. Well, it's really not surprising that tidal stream energy could provide the UK with so much electricity because Britain actually accounts for over 50% of Europe's potential tidal resources.
5: That's really huge. So given the opportunity that we have and the fact that this resource is literally on tap for us, why is it that tidal technologies are still in their infancy? Well,
4: much of the stilted progress is, of course, predictably down to cash. Now, Stephen Wyatt is the Director of Emerging Technology at Catapult. Catapult is a not-for-profit network of innovation centres that help to link up businesses, bright ideas and funding to get good high-potential ideas, as they put it, into the marketplace. So, Stephen, what is the landscape for marine renewables look like at the moment
10: the the landscape for marine renewables is generally positive at the moment there is a huge push uh, towards net zero and offshore renewables generally have been identified as being a key part of the future energy mix
4: well you say it, it looks positive but we've just heard from our previous guest that actually we're back in the 1990s in terms of the comparison between where other renewables are and marine renewables. So are you saying there's a lot of potential, it just is waiting to be realised?
10: So I think for things like tidal stream energy, um, they are still in the development phase. So we've spent the last 10 or 15 years moving from the lab-scale prototypes through to full-scale prototypes, and as, as we've just heard, the first commercial arrays. We now really are in the place where we're looking to get genuinely commercial and moving to engage with the government subsidy uh, system that will allow us to move to that first phase of commercial projects.
4: Well, Simon Waldman was saying we, we basically learn by doing. So have we got realistic technologies now that are actually enabling us to do that? And, and is there sufficient resource there to grease the wheels financially?
10: So we do we do have a handful of very credible technology concepts now Often these technologies are developed by small companies and the nature of the grant funding can be a little bit stop start. And of course, they have to convince private sector investors with the right risk appetite to come in. So I'd say it's been a little bit of a turbulent journey, but we are now thankfully in the place where we have a number of credible concepts ready to scale up to these commercial arrays.
4: How much are the government putting up because obviously this is being led by governments isn 't it to, to when you 've got a big problem which needs somebody to de risk it a bit the way you de risk it is governments give grants and that kind of thing so how much yeah. potential funding is there
10: so historically, tidal stream companies have received from government have received uh, capital grants and it 's been a bit stop start as I say, but typically that 's been between ten and twenty million pounds per annum but that's not a lot when you try and sort of look is, at is the is that number per of concepts. project
4: or is that for the entire no that,
10: that, that that's been in its entirety uh and it's not a lot when you sort of start looking across the number of concepts that we're trying to progress here we're now moving i mean just putting that way. in
4: perspective because i mean i i know from talking to people who do wind for example that just building one wind turbine costs four million so when you think you're now dealing with a very different environment where the exigencies of being in the marine environment are huge, aren't they? I mean, the challenge is there. Yeah. 20 million is nothing.
10: So, so yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think the, the tidal energy companies have worked incredibly hard to make a small amount of public funding go a long way. Um, they've also had a bit of a hiatus in funding in recent years. But now, thankfully, due to a large part of lobbying by, by industry, we now have a subsidy regime in place that will allow them to tap into the same sort of project funding that we're seeing for things like offshore wind and nuclear. So if you like, tidal stream, despite some of the headwinds of developing the technology, has now come of age, and they're able to bid into the same sort of subsidy pots as more established technologies.
4: Just briefly, we were hearing just now that um, the prediction is that perhaps 10% of what we need in energy at the moment is potentially sourceable from tidal stream and so on does that seem realistic to you and do you, do you think we're on target to get there and over what sort of time scale
10: our sort of own analysis probably puts the figure a little bit higher than that definitely think it's it's realistic to assume that tidal stream will make a material contribution it's there it can be tapped into now but ideally we want to continue to drive technology development bring the costs of generation down a little bit more and then we can start deploying at commercial scale my view is we're at the start of a golden decade here And so over the next 10 years, we're going to see tidal stream move at a rapid pace, um, similar to the journey we've seen for things like offshore wind, where costs have more than halved over the last five years. And I think with the appropriate deployment levels, we'll see that happen again.
4: Stephen, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed. That's Stephen Wyatt. He is from Catapult.
5: Now, we're continuing with our month of renewables. We've heard how only £20 million is being funnelled into tidal stream projects in the UK. And in just a moment, we'll hear what that cash will do for companies that are attempting to pave the way with new tech.
4: Now, someone who's helping to push that frontier forward is Luke Myers. He's Associate Professor of Marine Energy and Micro Renewables at the University of Southampton. And Harry paid him a visit.
11: So my stock answer when I'm in the pub and people say what do you do, I say underwater wind turbines, and that's because <laughs> the tile industry is quite quickly narrowed down onto a marinized version of a wind turbine. Previously we've had a few sort of more novel designs. We've had vertical axis, um, and the, historically we've had wind turbines like that, and we've had some that have been uh, look like um, one of those lawnmowers that spin round. You know, with the sort of the blades out the front. We've also got them in ducts. So basically channelling the flow through the blades. And then finally we've had some sort of flapping hydrofoils that look a little bit like a dolphin's tail.
5: So lots of prototypes. And why is it that the industry seems to be settling on an underwater wind turbine? I think because that
11: way there's a lot of technology transfer between wind and tidal in terms of things like the powertrain and the electronics and all that sort of the back end of the system. Fundamentally it's mechanically identical. And so go on then. What have we got in front of us? So we have something that's broadly similar to a lot of the devices you might see on the internet now. It's a three-bladed upwind or upstream tidal turbine. The diameters are reconfigurable, so we can put different sized blades on them. It depends on the amount of force that the model can take and also how much electricity we generate as well.
5: You've pulled out a different blade, and what's most startling about it is the fact that it's bright gold, so it looks fantastic. Also, the wing tip is slightly different. What's this got to do with... The prototype that is in front of us.
11: OK, so the reason it's gold is that it's aluminium and it's anodized to stop it corroding. Oh, so this is on purpose, yep. the gold. It's not yep. just
5: a, a style choice.
11: No. With the blades, we have to keep a very precise shape on them. So if the shape changes through corrosion or any sort of biofouling, it ruins the performance. The uplift at the end of the blade is what you see on most commercial passenger aircraft, which is, they're called winglets. The idea is that they stop turbulent flow falling off the edge of the wing, and what that does, it creates drag for an aircraft, so it reduces the performance. It does a similar thing for a tidal or a wind turbine as well. The cost of adding a winglet to a blade is is really quite cheap when you're making your blades out of glass or carbon fibre. So it just needs a different mould, and then the, the material cost is, is relatively small. And we found an increase in the rotor power of almost 10%, which is huge. When you
5: found this out, you sent this to one of the commercial companies that you've been working with as a research facility what's that relationship like between industry and research at university or, or other I don't know, educational facilities
11: we are trying to liaise and work with an industry that is highly competitive because it's at that nascent sort of development stage so sometimes for us it's quite difficult to work with multiple companies so either on the same project or, or sequentially but it's, it's completely understandable that if they have um, an industry advantage, they, they want to keep that. So when we discovered the uplift and performance from designing the winglets, um, I realized we needed to get the results out fairly quickly. So I actually contacted one of the large manufacturers uh, via a web form <laughs> and said, I've got this amazing research, and I'm happy to give it to you straight away. And so three people came back on the email in touch sounding very excited then it turned out that they had no idea that we did any of this work no idea that we had all the facilities and the capabilities that we do so it kind of goes to illustrate just how sort of insulated and busy you know these sort of companies are they don't have the resources to check up on what we're doing so unless we're working together directly on a research project they may never know of what we've done
5: and they might not know like you said about all the facilities that you have here. And hopefully, if there's someone downstairs, we might get to have a look at the... I've forgotten what the room's actually called again. So we have,
11: at Southampton, we have the UK's largest towing tank, which is effectively a very large swimming pool with a wave maker at one end and a motorised carriage that zooms up and down. So we'll go and see that. Let's go. Someone might
5: nick it as (laughs) a (laughs) paperweight. That's a hefty paperweight. Yeah. Yeah, But it won't rust. No. It looks a little bit like something out of um, Q's testing lab at the bottom of MI5 or 6. Oh, and obviously you get the awesome echo as well. So when it comes to taking that prototype of yours that you've got and placing it in the water, what's the process here? How does this facility help you? It's a body of still water.
11: It's 138 metres long, it's 6 metres wide and it's 3.5 metres deep. And what we can do here is we can tow things like model ships and vessels and tidal turbines, through this body of water. There's also a 03 millimetre difference from one end to the other to account for the curvature of the Earth because of the length of the tank. We have a 65 metre wide carriage at one end, and that is towed via an overhead cable up and down this tank, backwards and forwards, up to about 12 metres per second, which is frighteningly fast if you're on board.
5: Oh, so your turbines in this instance, they're not sitting on the bottom of the, of the pool. They're actually being dragged through to, to give the impression of a current. In, in a similar
11: way that a wind tunnel works. So you could have a Formula One car that's going around a circuit and you could measure the, the, the forces on it or you could make it still in a wind tunnel and move the air past it. So that's often what we do in engineering. The advantage of this one is that we're not moving the water, which is, takes a lot of energy,
5: when it comes down to the prototypes that you produce and what's on the market, how efficient are these wind light turbines that go underwater? So our relative efficiencies for our models alone are
11: comparable to full-scale wind turbines already. So we get a, what's called a coefficient of performance. For our small models, is around about 0.42, and the largest wind turbines are around about 0.5-something. So, but that coefficient of performance, that efficiency gets better as you get bigger.
5: And what does that mean?
11: That's a proportion of the available energy that you can turn into electricity. So, for example, if you take a coal-fired power station, it has a, a, a similar coefficient of around about 35%. So for every three units of coal you burn, one unit goes into
5: electricity and two get wasted as, as heat and other losses. So do you think that technology is going to get better and be able to take on even even more of that energy that those currents are producing?
11: Yeah, so we have some currents which are frighteningly fast, um, especially up around the, sort of, the western coast and, and up to the north of Scotland. How I think. Quick,
5: how quick are we talking?
11: Around about 5 metres per second, so that's 10 knots. For reference, one cubic metre of water weighs the same as a family car. So for every square metre of area, that's five family cars hitting you every second. <laughs> so it's epic amounts of, uh, engineering term, epic uh, amounts of kinetic energy.
5: And compared to wind... That, that's not under nearly as much stress because the stuff must be moving quicker but at the same time far less dense
11: yeah so tidal turbines the thrust force per unit area so the amount of stuff that's hitting you per unit area is orders of magnitude higher it's much greater so tidal turbines will be much more compact and much smaller we'll never see 80 meter diameter tidal turbines um, because the forces are so great underwater so they'll be far more far more compact and smaller and sort of hidden under the water
5: Again, in comparison to wind turbines, how much, how much energy are we able to take from a single tidal turbine compared to a, a wind turbine?
11: I think ultimately it depends how big tidal turbines get. At present, because of the high forces and the, um, the, the efforts you need to make to resist those forces, effectively say your blades don't snap off, current thinking is that around about 20 metres in diameter is going to be the maximum for a tidal turbine. Now, the power output depends on the, the speed of the flow, but really roughly, I think, individual turbines are between one and two megawatts. A
4: oh, fascinating interview, absolutely fascinating. The concept of building a swimming pool that compensates for the curvature of the Earth, that's amazing. But as Luke was alluding to there, the size of the turbine isn't the most important factor to consider. It's the efficiency of the
5: machine and, of course, the cost to make it. Now, as we've already heard, there are relatively few companies that have demonstrated commercial viability in open sea trials. In order to receive government support, companies must be producing electricity and supplying that to the grid. This stage of development is sometimes referred to as the valley of death, when a startup has begun operations but not generated revenue. This is sort of where nearly all the startups in the marine renewable space are. And one
4: of the pioneers in that space is Orbital. And their CEO is Andrew Scott, and he's with us now. Andrew, tell us about your technology. What does it look like? If I was in the sea alongside it, what would I see?
8: Yeah, well, our technology is a little bit different, very innovative. It doesn't look like a wind turbine, a miniaturised turbine bolted to the bottom of the seabed. Some people kind of think it looks like a spacecraft or an aircraft, so it's got two big wings and a fuselage and actually the whole thing floats and at the end of the wings we've got our powertrains so there's two powertrains one at either end and it's anchored on site with big big set of moorings and the wings are hinged so they can come up to the surface so that we can get access to everything at low cost and then they can drop down to start generating power
4: now when you say powertrains by that that's the, the turbines, for want of a better phrase, that's going to extract the energy from the water flowing past your structure.
8: Yeah, I mean, as, I think as uh, one of your previous guests was saying, is it's a very similar technology uh, to actually generate the power as wind turbines. Um, some people call them nacelles or powertrains, but it's really the, the rotors that t- take the kinetic energy and turn it into rotational energy, and then you couple that with a gearbox and a generator. And how big is the whole thing? Yeah, that's the other thing that will probably surprise people is um, it kind of looks like a plane and it actually is about the size of a jumbo jet 747. And how much
4: juice comes down that cable?
8: Uh, Well, so the the turbine that we've built uh, and launched last year, we call it the O2. It's the world's most powerful tidal turbine. And when flow speeds get uh, up to 2.5 metres a second, it reaches rated capacity, which is two megawatts of power.
4: Would you then envisage a fleet of these that you would anchor in optimal locations, presumably so they don 't all interfere with each other or bash into each other, but you would therefore be optimizing the extraction of energy from where the tidal flow is fastest?
8: yeah, absolutely, in the same way that you get wind farms that are you know multiples of one, two, three, four megawatt turbines, uh, we envisage that we would have multiple of these in a tidal stream sites that are all generating power onto a cable back to shore.
4: And I suppose one of the massive advantages of doing this is that because the tide comes in and out twice a day, you know when. And so it makes the the generation and therefore the provision of energy that you know is going to be there very predictable and therefore very reliable.
8: Yeah, that's the beauty of tidal stream energy is that um, you know exactly how much energy you're going to produce and you know exactly when you're going to produce it. And there's actually value in knowing when you're not going to produce it as well, because if you've got uh, planned maintenance and things, you can schedule it for times when there's very little or no tide so you can do work um, without really disrupting the overall performance or yield of the turbine.
4: One of our other guests was, was pointing out that you know it's a pretty harsh environment, the marine environment. I suppose that by having something that is not stuck to the seabed, that you can lift those wings up to get to the business end of the operation quite simply. You've actually made it much easier to maintain, and therefore you presumably have saved quite a bit of money.
8: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's kind of a golden rule or a, or a rule of thumb in the offshore environment is that a, a job that will take cost you maybe a pound onshore will cost you maybe £10 offshore at the surface, but it'll probably cost you £1,000 at the bottom of the seabed. So, you know, being able to get access to equipment quickly and cheaply on the surface is absolutely key.
4: When is this going to be realised? So it is actually beyond the prototype generating little bits of power stage?
8: Well, O2 is generating power right now into the UK grid. So uh, we built it and launched it last year from Dundee. Um, And the aspirations are, and we're planning on building more of these in the coming years to start creating these arrays, both in Scotland and around the UK.
4: For comparison then, Andrew, so if I build a big wind turbine, megawatt for megawatt, what's it cost to have the same generating capacity with one of your devices?
8: The average cost for a megawatt offshore is probably today around about three to three and a half million pounds per megawatt. And for us, we built the last turbine at just a little bit over 5 million pounds a megawatt.
4: So you're not far off what we're already achieving with wind.
8: No, not 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 very far at all. Now, the overall cost of energy is a function of a lot of other things. Obviously, your resource is free, but how your generator performs, you know, one of your previous guests was talking about improving the performance of rotors and all these sorts of things. So these are things that wind have benefited from for the last 20, 30 years. And indeed, they've benefited from a volume of scale, economies of scale. So those are all things that have allowed their overall cost of energy to come down a lot. And certainly landing where we are from a cost, from a manufacturing cost where we are, we think is, you know, really exciting.
4: Have you now got an order book then to do this not just for the UK but internationally Uh, or or is this still very much at the stage of hand to mouth it's making some electricity you're proving the point but you're still waiting for those calls to come in
8: well we do have commercial projects here in the UK and we anticipate this summer we should get clearance from government support hopefully to move forward with them. And indeed, actually, we've got another turbine to build and put up in Orkney and combine with uh, an electrolyzer and battery storage as well. So, yeah, we're, we're moving forward um, with some exciting commercial projects here in the UK. And we're seeing definitely an upturn of interest from regions around the world, regions around the world that have got tidal stream energy that are very interested in what we're doing.
4: We'll keep an eye on what you get up to. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us to talk about it. That's Andrew Scott from Orbital talking about their O2.
5: I think it's really refreshing to have heard how far the renewable energy sector has come. For example, 2020 was the first year where the UK's renewable energy production exceeded that which was produced by coal. Whilst marine resources harbour a lot of potential, that initial investment is still too high and potentially risky for investors. We're waiting for those baby steps, those little injections of cash to increase as more prototypes make their way into the sea. Thanks, Harry. Well, let's move on to something completely different
4: and end the show as we customarily do with our question of the week. And this week, Otis Kingsman is sniffing around for a solution to this question from listener Tim. Why can't my partner smell certain strong odours when in the countryside?
1: She can smell manure but is immune to smelling certain potent flowers and herbs.
12: When travelling to the Naked Scientist's office, I end up passing through a series of fields and let me tell you, I wish I could block out some of those smells. Here to explain the situation of your partner's ability to smell is Professor of Neurobiology Sandeep Robert Dutta from Harvard Medical School. But before that, we should first understand how we even smell in the first place.
13: Smells are actually detected by your nose by specialized cells called olfactory-sensory neurons. These neurons detect smells because each expresses a specialized odor detector called an odor receptor. Your genome actually encodes about 400 of these different receptors. And each one of these receptors is specialized to interact with a different set of odorants. You can think of each odor receptor kind of like a lock and an odor like a key. Odors float into your nose, and when they find the matching receptor, when the key finds the lock, the receptor gets turned on and the neuron gets activated.
12: These neurons send signals to our brain telling us what the scent is. However, individual receptors come in unique variants, which lead to everyone having a different selection of receptors in our nose.
13: It turns out, for at least some smells, your ability to detect the smell and your perception of smells can depend on the specific receptor genes you've inherited from your parents. For example, there are some people who love the smell of male underarm sweat, while to others it's disgusting. The reason different people have different perceptions of that particular odour is because they've inherited different versions of the gene that encodes the receptor for male underarm sweat.
12: And here I was thinking that deodorant was essential to make armpits smell better. So genes are the likely cause of why we have different smell receptors, and therefore, your partner may not be able to smell certain scents. It doesn't matter how strong it is, if we don't have the right receptors, our brains won't detect the smell.
13: That isn't to say that genes are everything. Smell perception also crucially depends on our experience of smells, both recently and across the lifetime. But genes are the most likely explanation for what's going on between you and your partner, Assuming that you and your partner both share a cultural background and have shared most of your recent olfactory experiences.
12: Thank you to Professor Sandeep Robert Dutta for helping us sniff out that answer. Next week, we'll be looking at this communication conundrum from listener Mike.
5: Does email and texting affect our brain's cognitive functions?
4: otis kingsman and if you at home have a question or indeed an answer why not submit it on our forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum you can also email us it's chris at the NakedScientist.com. there we must leave it but do be sure to join us again next week where we'll be swept along on the breeze wind the backbone of renewable energy consumption the naked scientist comes to you from the university of cambridge's institute of continuing education it is supported by rolls-royce i'm chris smith thanks for listening and until next time goodbye